this morning we are going to do something very different. In fact, for the next several Sundays, we'll be doing something different than normal. I'm going to move away from our study in John's Gospel to address some very important issues pertaining to uh, our church, issues that affect each and every one of you. And the elders have been working on a variety of things over the last year in particular. And quite frankly, we have never been more excited about what's happening in our church and the direction that we are pursuing than we are today. And I know that most of you share our enthusiasm. But it is our sincere prayer that all of you will be deeply encouraged but by what I have to share with you over the next few weeks concerning the vision, the goals, the strategic objectives of Calvary Bible Church, which frankly fall underneath each of the five pillars that you have on your little handout and that you see up here this morning. They are expository preaching, Christ-exalting song worship, sharing the gospel of God's sovereign grace, personal discipleship and in-depth theological training, and then prayer and one-anothering. You will understand more of this as we move ahead. I am going to be explaining to you the biblical and practical reasoning behind each pillar that really supports our truth so that you will understand who we are, where we're going, and when people come to you and say, well, tell me a bit about your church, you will have some little outline in your mind that will help you do just that. We want you to know what's going on on a day-to-day basis, what's going on behind the scenes, and what's going to be happening in the future. Which elder is in charge, uh, his responsibility, how we plan on implementing uh, various ministries within the church, uh, how every single one of you will be able to be a part of what we are doing. Occasionally we hear the criticism, I just can't seem to get plugged in. Well, we take that very seriously, and we believe that by further implementing these strategic objectives, you will all see where you can be plugged in, and hopefully that will eliminate that complaint altogether. A little bit of history. What began as a handful of people meeting in my living room has radically changed. And frankly, it was so much easier back then, so much easier when I was constantly, intimately involved in everyone's life. I liken it to the Mayflower. When the pilgrims came over, everybody shared the common goals. We, we all communicated on a regular basis. Everybody had a responsibility. They gladly performed it. Um, therefore, everybody felt like they belonged. Nobody ever said, you know, I just don't feel loved or cared for. You you just never heard that. There were no cliques, no in-group, no out-group. No one ever said, I just don't seem to fit in, or I don't feel loved, or I I don't know where we're going as a church, or, or I don't like the pastor. All right? We just didn't have that. But like life aboard the Mayflower, we endured the inevitable storms uh, of satanic attacks as we navigated the waters of, of starting a new church in a very hostile environment. 
And believe me, this is a very hostile environment to our kind of a church. And it was only by God's grace that we've been able to stay the course down through these years. But as we began to grow, all of these wonderful things began to change. As soon as we started to outgrow the living room, we had to begin to put people in the next room. And suddenly you had an in-group and an out-group. And as that continued to grow, especially by the time we reached about 70 people, there was no possible way I could keep track of things and we could all communicate and so forth, especially as a bivocational pastor. So we had to make adjustments. We had to get more organized. We had to add new leaders. And what we began to see is that a church is always kind of in motion. It's always changing you will see that it's kind of a moving target. Some would come and grow, and many would come and go. That's life in a church. And what once was easy became more complicated as we grew larger. We had to become more sophisticated in our organization, more focused on who we are, what we can do, what we can't do based upon uh, our resources, uh, the personnel that we have, and so forth. And all of this is rooted in our understanding, our shared understanding of the Word of God as it relates primarily to the nature and the purpose of the church. In other words, our philosophy of ministry. So I want to talk about that for a few minutes before I talk more specifically about the pillar that I am primarily responsible for, namely expository preaching and all that falls underneath that particular category. If you're unclear about the, the nature and the purpose of the church, you'll, what we're going to be talking about, frankly, won't make as much sense. Now, Scripture teaches that the Lord established His church to temporarily replace Israel in this particular dispensation. The Word of God teaches that we are a community of believers. We are redeemed by Christ's precious blood and we really have a threefold function if you want to narrow it down. We are a worshiping community, a witnessing community, and a working community. Said differently, the church is to exalt the Lord, evangelize the world, and edify its members. I like to think of it as a three-legged stool. If one leg is weak or if one leg is missing, it cannot stand. And everything in the New Testament commands the, the church to do things that fall under these three primary headings. And each individual member, each of you that are a part of the body of Christ, have a particular role to play, have a particular function. You are to participate in these three key areas, and we are going to expand upon that with the five pillars as time goes on. So first of all, let me talk about what it means to be a worshiping community, biblically. As you recall, the supreme goal of, um, of those of us who have been reconciled to God by grace alone, through faith alone, is ultimately to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, our strength, our total being, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, this is going to be difficult to do, as we know, 
because our flesh prefers that we love ourselves more than God and more than our neighbors. And so we can subtly say, well, you know, as long as God and uh, my neighbors do the things that make me happy, uh, and as long as I can have my way, then we're all going to get along just fine. But when they don't, then I'm out of here. That's kind of how we all function, if we're honest. We have to guard against that. But we are saved to these ends. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, Paul makes it clear that we have been chosen, we have been predestined, he says, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's our goal. You know what a glorious thing the church is. The church is the gathering place of true worshipers. Paul speaks about this in Philippians chapter 3. And in verse 3, he says that, that we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Think about it. This is the only institution that Christ has promised to build and to bless You may recall in our study in John, in John chapter 4, Jesus describes the the dramatic change between the patterns of worship um, in the Old Covenant and in the the days of of Israel and how they function versus the New Covenant. And in John 4 and verse 24, he tells us that we are now to worship him in spirit and in truth. So there's no more temple. There's no more holy place, no more sacrifices, no more prescribed patterns of worship, no more priesthood. In fact, we are told in 1 Corinthians 3.16 that the church is a, quote, spiritual house. See, it no longer contains a priesthood. It really is a priesthood that offers up spiritual sacrifices to God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, We are told, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And as a worshiping community, we give sacrifices to the Lord in a variety of ways. And according to the New Testament, they are things like the ministry of the gospel in evangelism and discipleship, the ministry of the word, the ministry of holy living, of prayer, of serving others, of fellowship, the ministry of the Lord's Supper, the ministry of gratitude and giving. Indeed, our whole life is to be an act of worship. And this is part of what the church is all about. But not only are we a worshiping community, we are to be a witnessing community. We have a divine mandate to evangelize the world, to make disciples. In fact, in all four Gospels, Christ has given us this great commission. For example, Matthew records in chapter 28, verse 18, that we are to go, therefore, Jesus says, and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we are to go, we are to make disciples, we are to baptize. We are not to just teach, 
but teach people to obey, to apply the Word of God. Each one of us are to be involved in this gospel enterprise. This isn't something that just I do or the elders or the Sunday school teachers or whatever. Each of us are to be involved in this particular mandate. In fact, Jesus said in Luke chapter 24 and verse 47 that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And we see this being fulfilled in a variety of ways in the New Testament and we try to live them out as a church. For example, in Acts 2, we see we are to do this with the person next to us. In Acts 5, we are to go to the house next door. We see that illustrated. In Acts 8, we are to go to the next town. In Acts 10, we see how we are to go to people of other ethnic backgrounds. In Acts 13, we see the commissioning of special men to take the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth. So the church is to be a a part of all of this. And there are many very creative ways to carry out this great commission, but every church has to be very careful to choose ways that are consistent with its unique makeup, with its unique location, with its personnel, with its resources. Therefore, the five pillars and all that fall under them. So not only are we a worshiping and a witnessing community, but finally we are to be a working community. Remember, the church is a a living, it is a spiritual organism, the body of Christ. And every person who is a part of this body is to function within that organism by using their spiritual gifts to help fellow believers grow into conformity with Christ. Uh, the roles of the pastor and the elders is to help each, of, each member of the body of Christ to discover and develop their gifts for the overall growth of the body. Think about it. Even as every cell in the human body has a unique function, a unique purpose designed by God to serve the rest of the body, so too each member's cell in the body of Christ, in the church. Even as a physical cell cannot live outside the body, so too a member of the body of Christ cannot live apart from the church. If a cell in our physical body no longer functions, our body eliminates that particular cell. Similarly, non-functioning members in the body of Christ gradually disappear. If a rogue cell refuses to respond to the brain, to the head of the physical body, or if a diseased cell begins to attack other cells in the physical body, a metastasizing cancer begins to spread. The same is true in the body of Christ. Frankly, a church simply cannot function according to the purposes of God and survive the inevitable onslaughts of Satan unless every member is working together in a spiritual synergy within this organism according to his or her unique design and gifting and purpose in submission to the authority that God has placed over each one of us. And frankly, I am thrilled to see the way so many of you function in this capacity. I, I continue to be amazed at how, 
how you folks love to serve Christ and love to work together. What a joy it is to work with you, to co-labor with you. It, it, it truly is a ministry to my soul, to worship Christ with you, to fellowship with you. Now, as we think about the church, we also have to ask about leadership. How does that work? Well, very briefly, and I know most of this is review, but it's important to have it down, especially for those of you that may not be familiar with these things. Every church is to be led by a plurality of elders that meet the qualifications as best they can in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. They are to shepherd the flock. And of all of the titles and metaphors used to describe leaders in Scripture, perhaps that of a shepherd is the most fitting because a shepherd with his sheep will, will lead and feed and nurture and comfort and protect and, and correct the sheep. In 1 Peter 5, verse 1, Peter speaks of this. He says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, while leadership needs to be in the context of a plurality of elders, we know that there also, according to the New Testament, has to be a, shall we say, senior pastor, a head of that group. Peter served along the side of the others, but he was clearly the one with the strongest voice. He was the first among equals, we might say. And likewise, we see men and other parts of the New Testament being set apart to lead. As the apostolic era came to a close, we see how God established the office of pastor-teacher as the highest office of church leadership. I'll talk more about that in a moment. You see, for example, in Ephesians 4.11, uh, the mention of pastor-teacher. And the primary meaning of pastor is to shepherd which emphasizes the care and the protection and the feeding and the leadership uh, he is to give to the flock. And the term teacher just underscores his primary function. Jesus is the great shepherd. The pastor is to be the under-shepherd. So every church should have a leader uh, that works with the rest of the elders. Basically then, the pastor-teacher functions in that role. We see James doing that, for example, in the church of Jerusalem. We read examples of this in like Acts 15, uh, and even some of the uh, old church fathers describe his leadership. We see Paul clearly affirming Timothy and Titus to be pastor teachers of their respective churches. John even addressed the seven letters to the churches in, in Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3 to the specific men that were the primary leaders. But again, the pastor-teacher has to co-labor with the other spiritual overseers, the other elders, because the pastor-teacher does not have all the gifts. Plus, we need to have the accountability and the protection of the other men. And there is no organized function in the world that can function effectively 
apart from a leader. And to be sure, if no one is in charge, or if everyone is in charge, then no one is in charge. And the other extreme, of course, would be the dictator-pastor, the CEO, the commander-in-chief that expects everyone to say or to ask how high when he says jump. And that is wrong. So you will see in Scripture that there needs to be a leader among the shepherds. In fact, anything in nature that has more than one head is considered a freak. And we see the same thing being true in the church. But again, every pastor teacher must, every senior pastor, if you will, must willingly submit himself to the other elders. And his primary function, as I said before, is preaching and teaching. For example, we are told that those who work hard at preaching and teaching in 1 Timothy 5.17 are worthy of double honor, Paul says. And the church is to obey your leaders, Hebrews 13.17, and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Now, the New Testament has given me a very clear job description, and you need to hold me accountable to this. And believe me, the elders do, and gladfully so. Christ, who is the head of the church, has made it clear what I am to do, and he has delineated my marching orders in various passages in the New Testament, especially in the pastoral epistles, for example, in First and Second Timothy. And I'm going to just read you a summary of what my responsibility is to the church, what every pastor should be about. And I'm going to read this according to the way John MacArthur has summarized these things in the order that they appear in the text. But I'm not going to read the actual reference for the sake of time. So, the role of the pastor. First, correct those teaching false doctrine and call them to a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Fight for the divine truth and for God's purposes, keeping his own faith and a good conscience. Pray for the lost and lead the men of the church to do the same. Call women in the church to fulfill their God-given role of submission and to raise up godly children, setting an example of faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. Carefully select spiritual leaders for the church on the basis of their giftedness, godliness, and virtue. Recognize the source of error in those who teach it and point these things out to the rest of the church. Constantly be nourished on the words of Scripture and its sound teaching, avoiding all myths and false doctrines. Discipline himself for the purpose of godliness. Boldly command and teach the truth of God's word. Be a model of spiritual virtue that all can follow. Faithfully read and explain and apply the scriptures publicly. Be progressing toward Christ's likeness in his own life. Be gracious and gentle in confronting the sin of his people. Give special consideration and care to those who are widows. Honor faithful church leaders who work hard. Choose church leaders with great care, seeing to it that they are both mature and proven. Take care of his physical condition so he is strong to serve. Teach and preach principles of true godliness, helping his people discern between true godliness and mere hypocrisy. Flee from the love of money. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight for the faith against all enemies and all attackers. Instruct the rich to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous. 
guard the word of God as a sacred trust and treasure. That's 1 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, Paul reminded him to keep the gift of God in him fresh and useful, to not be timid but powerful, to never be ashamed of Christ or anyone who serves Christ, to hold tightly to the truth and guard it, be strong in character, be a teacher of apostolic truth so that he may reproduce himself in faithful men, suffer difficulty and persecution willingly while making the maximum effort for Christ, keep his eyes on Christ at all times, lead with authority, interpret and apply scripture accurately, avoid useless conversation that leads only to ungodliness, be an instrument of honor set apart from sin and useful to the Lord, Flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, and love. Refuse to be drawn into philosophical and theological wranglings. Do not argue, but be kind, teachable, gentle, and patient, even when you are wronged. Face dangerous times with a deep knowledge of the Word of God. Understand that Scripture is the basis and content of all legitimate ministry. Preach the Word in season and out of season, reproving, rebuking, and exhorting with great patience and instruction. Be sober in all things. Do the work of an evangelist. Now, as you can see, most of these responsibilities center around the concept of preaching and teaching the Word of God systematically, in-depth preaching and teaching. This has to be my primary emphasis. In Ephesians 4, as I mentioned earlier, in verse 11 and following, we read this. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. The word and there can be translated in particular. Pastors that in particular are teachers. In other words, a pastor teacher, a teaching shepherd. Why? Why did he give the, the, the pastor teacher? He goes on to say, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, as we look at Scripture, my friends, we see that this will never happen apart from the in-depth, systematic teaching and preaching of the Word of God. It's for this reason that the Apostle Paul said this to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So I am to preach the word. And frankly, all of you are to preach and teach the word. It's not my word that that I am to talk about. It's not my ideas. I am not to use the word of God to somehow validate or illustrate some things that I want to say. 
I'm not to use the word to make it say something that it's really not saying, but I am to preach the word. Unfortunately, it's very common these days for pastors to get into pulpits and they open up the Bible and they use it to just validate or illustrate something that they want to talk about with absolutely no concern for the author's intent. And 90% of the time, the passage that they're using has absolutely nothing to do with what they're talking about. And what's even more tragic, and I've seen this on multiple occasions, the people in the audience really don't know. And most of them really don't care. And then often they will elaborate on a few key points that some survey group or focus group has determined is is important in some particular zip code and then they will wrap up all of their thoughts with some spiritual concepts basically suited for some individualized belief system offering an audience a menu of, of a la carte truths you can kinda of choose what you want pick and choose and apply them to whatever you have going on in your life especially your felt needs By the way, Paul warned about this very thing. This is why it it is so important to remember. After exhorting Timothy to preach the word, he went on to say in 2 Timothy 4, 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They they don't want to have in-depth, precise theology. They're not going to want that instead, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Satan wants churches to be devoted to the word of man, not the word of God. Satan wants churches to be man-centered, not God-centered. And he is very clever to make both the sheep and many times the shepherd think that they are devoted to Scripture because, after all, the pastor is reading right out of the Bible. He's got a, he's got a verse to illustrate his point. But unfortunately, too often, what's going on is a twisting and a distorting of the Word of God, a dumbing down of the sheep and even the shepherd. And eventually it gets to a point where the sheep and even the shepherd are so dumb they don't even know what's going on. We can become too ignorant to even know we are ignorant. So it's for this reason that at the very center of all that we do here at the church, we are committed to the Word of God, to teaching it, preaching it. Our mission statement, which you can read on our website online publicly, says that we exist to equip the saints through expository preaching and teaching. And then I go on to define that. And I'm going to read verbatim what is on the website so that you can go back and you can read that. Saints cannot be equipped for godly living and service apart from precise theology, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. This is the goal of expository preaching and teaching. The term exposit literally means to expound or explain in a detailed manner. Expository preaching is therefore a doctrinal proclamation of the word of God derived from an exegetical process that is concerned only with the revelation of God, not the wisdom of man, and therefore carefully conveys the God-intended meaning of a text, passionately applying that meaning to the contemporary issues of life, 
with an internal zeal and authority that cannot be extinguished. I go on to say, although this kind of preaching and teaching is rare in contemporary evangelicalism, since this was the method exemplified in the Bible, then I've got a whole list of references to support that that you can read. And since we have a divine mandate to preach the word, as I've just said in 2 Timothy 4.2, we believe that this is the God-ordained method and we remain committed to it. Now, as you know, we tend to do this in not just this pulpit, but in other areas of our church teaching. Uh, We tend to do this in a verse-by-verse manner. Certainly, I do this from the pulpit. That uh, eliminates the temptation to skip over those controversial passages that you know are going to get some people upset. There's no bouncing around from topic topic to topic. You see, expository preaching, dear friends, allows God to speak, and it silences the pastor, the preacher. Frankly, I have nothing to say. I'm merely his messenger. It connects the mind of the preacher and the congregation to the very thoughts and words of the Spirit of God that has authored these amazing truths. And it makes sure that the preacher proclaims the whole counsel of God and does so with the full authority of God. You see, I have no authority on my own. Jesus said in his prayer to the Father in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. The point is, we cannot be set apart unto God and unto holy living apart from the word of God. It's his truth, thy truth, not my truth, not my word, not my experience, not something that God has told me outside of the Bible that I need to tell you. But it's thy word that is truth. That's what transforms us. So therefore, the first pillar of Calvary Bible Church, as you can see, And we've even got a little card that we hand out, and you can get some of those if you would like them. On there it says that it is, um, the first pillar is expository preaching that proclaims and protects the truth of God's authoritative word without apology or compromise. So if somebody asks, tell me about your church, you can say, well, first of all, um, our church is committed to expository preaching. And most people are going to say, what? What is that? And then you can tell them. Now, this will manifest itself in my primary area of responsibility within the church through preaching, through teaching, through writing and publishing, and through the Internet ministry that we have. And, of course, you're going to see this emphasis in all of the other ministries at the church. By the way, just as a footnote, you now are, are, I hope, very clear about my responsibility. I hope you know that you also have a responsibility. And you also have a privilege. And it is not to come and to critique or criticize the preacher. Believe me, you don't have a notebook big enough to put down all of those things. And you're going to find a lot of that. I'm just a mere man. But what you are to do is to pray, first of all, that I will communicate clearly God's message and pray for your ability to understand it to give your undivided attention to it, to comprehend it, and to apply it to your life. 
Now, a little bit about your pastor behind the scenes. The elders thought that it would be good that you hear a bit about this because sometimes people think, boy, you know, you must have a pretty cushy job, you know. You, you just read a little bit and, you know, put together some notes and, you know, get up and talk to people and so forth. And you know what? I, I do have, I wouldn't call it cushy, but I have a marvelous job. I don't even consider it a job. Those of you that love what you do, it's, you, you never go to work, do you? Not at all. But it's important for you to probably understand a little bit of what goes on behind the scenes. And this is going to prove important as well in helping you to understand why we are doing some of the things we are doing and why I'm not involved in everything, why it would be impossible for me to do so. First of all, I I have to live a very disciplined life in order to stay physically and spiritually effective. My life, like yours, can be divided into uh, kind of my, my private personal life and then my work life, which I prefer to call my, my ministry. And so let me tell you a little bit about what that looks like. Uh, ever since I became full-time uh, and was no longer a bivocational pastor here, which was, I'm not sure about this, but it, it was somewhere around 14, 15 years ago, um, my actual ministry uh, act- became, that schedule became more and more time-consuming. It had to become more sophisticated and organized. And especially over the past 10 years, uh, I have operated on a, a very regimented uh, life, a very regimented schedule. And like you, my ministry requires about 50 hours of, of work every week. I know many of you work 50-hour weeks. Sometimes mine are more than that, like yours. But it's, it's always going to be at, at least 50 hours. Um, and by the way, because I'm on call 24-7, my hours are flexible. There are times where I may work 16 hours and then sleep some and take the next afternoon off so I can go shooting. All right? That's going to happen sometimes. In fact, I had a friend call me and say, would you like to go bird hunting Tuesday? Well, I don't have time to go bird hunting Tuesday unless I move things around. So I'm going bird hunting Tuesday. That's how, the, that's how it has to work. But because of, of the things that I am required to do, I never know when you're going to call me in the middle of the night or in the afternoon or whenever, and suddenly it's time to set everything else apart that has to be done during the week and deal with that. And I do that with great joy. Don't hear that as something onerous. But the point is, this requires me to be very, very flexible and yet to have some degree of, of uh, organization. So my actual work week looks like this. Um, it can be divided into administration, which takes about five hours. Uh, my correspondence uh, is about five hours. That, by the way, is emails and letters. Uh, I'm always answering you. I'm answering listeners all around the world that call or write in with theological questions. Some of them call in. And then I have um, about 10 hours every week that is set aside for counseling and discipleship. Counseling is more of crisis types of things. I'm kind of like an ER doctor. I am not going to deal with you on a long-term basis, but I'm hopefully going to stop the bleeding and we're going to try to get some organization. All right, here's what we need to do and, and so forth. Um, and, and by the way, I welcome that. 
I welcome that. I want you to call. I don't want you to ever think, well, the pastor's just too busy. I always have time for you. And, and, and if I don't write then, I will work it out. We are going to take care of you somehow, some way. So I have counseling. I also have discipleship, which is a little more occasional uh, because of the sheer volume of people. There's no way that I can, you know, take you on an individual basis and meet with you every week, you know, at a particular time. And then my preaching and teaching preparation and prayer always comes out to somewhere around 18 hours. And then the actual Sunday morning and evening, uh, which now, by the way, is in Mount Juliet, the evenings, uh, and the Wednesday night uh, schedule, the actual, you know, the travel, the actual doing it, uh, uh, the, the things afterwards, all that encompasses about 12 hours. Um, and again, that's going to happen here in Jolton on Sunday nights. It's going to happen in Mount Juliet. And beginning here in a week or so, I'm going to start going every other Saturday night into Nashville, working close to the Belmont campus. We're going to be with Serge and Jazzy in their house. You're all welcome to come to that. I'm going to do that and alternate with Pastor Joe. And so we're going to try to reach into that community. So that, that will be basically what that's all about. I, as a footnote here, uh, Pastor Joe has a very similar kind of schedule. You're going to hear more about that. He does things behind the scenes that you never know about. I cannot tell you what, what a blessing he has been to me and to this church, taking the load off of me uh, to, to just be more effective. And you will, you will hear more about that later. And then the elders help as well. Uh, they have full-time jobs, but, but they do all that they can, and they're an enormous help. And so many of the rest of you do as well. Please hear that. And then Jana, of course, my dear daughter, is my personal assistant, and she does all of the things that I don't have time to do, and I greatly appreciate that. And then there's my dear wife, Nancy. And you have no idea what a helpmate she is to me, and what a tangible expression of God's grace in my life. Frankly, I really do not know how I could do anything that I do in this church without her. And so it's just God's blessing. And uh, if she keeps it up, I'm telling her I'm going to give her a raise. So we rejoice in that. Uh, and then I also include here, and I, I want you to understand this, I have a very, very rigorous physical exercise program that, uh, that I stay on uh, at least one hour um, uh, every day. And I have to do that in order to be not only obedient to Scripture, uh, but also to be able to ultimately withstand the stress of, of being a pastor. Now, each one of us in our jobs, I don't care what you do, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or you, you, you work in a, in, a, in a factory or in an office, we all have good stress and bad stress, don't we? Let, let, let me tell you a little bit about what that looks like for a pastor and at some level the elders as well. Uh, first of all, the bad stress. We, we are constantly, on a daily basis, interacting with people, many of you, you know that, who are struggling in significant ways. People who, some are, are battling life-dominating sins that are destroying their life, their marriage. Some of them, they're dealing with the sins of other people and so forth. And very often, it, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a real burden to try to deal with people, especially when you know what will change, what, what will help them. And somehow or another, they just don't hear it. And you watch their lives unravel. That is a huge burden. 
And then you also have uh, just the, the, the spiritual warfare. I mean, we are constantly in a battle. I think you've heard me say this before, but ministry is war. In fact, I would never want any of you to aspire uh, or, or, I mean, desire to be an elder unless you realize that you are marching into war. You are marching into the realm of spiritual warfare. You are going to be attacked relentlessly. You are going to deal with people that are under attack. And so it's a very difficult thing. It can be very draining. Moreover, there's always going to be strife and conflict in a church. We, we have that in this church. We have always had that in this church. We will always have that in this church. Every church has that. There has never been a week where everyone has been happy and we have all just gotten along and loved each other because we're all a bunch of sinners, right? That's what forgiveness is about. That's what grace is about. It truly is a man's glory to overlook a transgression. We are most like Christ when, when, when we forgive and so forth. There is, in terms of bad stress, there is that relentless criticism of my character and my conduct, most of, most of which is well-deserved. There are the chronic complaints about other people and church policies. There has never been a week where everyone, at least I don't think, where everyone has really liked me or has liked all the elders or has liked all the deacons, or all the Sunday school teachers, or all the Awana leaders, or you name it. My friends, there has never been a week where everybody's liked the music. And there never will be. And so these types of things, naturally, when you hear these, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm the, the manager at the restaurant, and somebody's really upset. I want to speak to the manager. Well, you know, here I come, and then, you know, I'm going to get raked over the coals here. And that, that's just part of it. And sometimes the criticisms are right. You know, sometimes the stake really was way too tough or whatever. And then there's the hate mail. The hate mail from listeners, sometimes from people within the church. But the hate mail, I, it, it's, it's a burden to you. You know, when I see it, I try to delete it. And Mickey is very helpful in making sure that I don't see the comments. I think he tells me that about a, a, a third of the comments are, are, you know, people that, they're just really upset. Two-thirds are good, but I choose not to look at any of it. But, but, but that, that does wear on you. But my suffering, my friends, is so small compared to others. And certainly it's not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I gladly, I gladly um, in, endure whatever the Lord brings my way because, you know, I've learned that, that I expect my sufferings to be greater even than yours. I, I believe that biblically, not only because of my calling to suffer hardship as a good soldier of the cross, but also I've learned that, that as a shepherd, I need to suffer so that I can learn greater sympathy for those of you who suffer. And I also have learned that I need to suffer so that I will live in a perpetual state of weakness and sorrow and difficulty so that I will depend on the Lord more, because when I'm weak, then he's strong. And so that's part of it. Now, there's also the good stress. And oh, boy, here's where I could go on and on. To see people come to Christ, to see people grow in Christ and walk with Christ, to enjoy the sweet fellowship 
that Nancy and I have with, with most all of you and just the joy of spending time with, with the Lord and serving him. Boy, it reminds me of that song we used to sing when I was a kid. There is joy in serving Jesus. You remember that? We, we probably need to sing that sometime, dig that out. There is joy in serving Jesus. So my prim- primary focus, again, here in Pillar 1, that takes about 30 hours per week for me, centers around this whole issue of expository preaching and teaching. There are other things, yes, but that is the dominant thing. There will be writing. In fact, tomorrow, the new version of the book that I wrote for my father, uh, which has been taken up by Bethany House, will go to print. And it will be in the bookstore sometime in April. And I have other manuscripts ready to go to be presented to hopefully find uh, a home and be published as well. And then there's the internet ministry that I, I kind of oversee in various ways and work very closely with Mickey, who does an enormous job in helping with that. And I appreciate, appreciate him so much. Well, in closing here this morning, uh, on a personal note, frankly, I, I marvel that God has set me apart to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ and to be your pastor, teacher, um, to co-labor with such a remarkable group of, of fellow elders and, 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 and all of you that, that I serve with. I, I, I truly want you to know that it is the joy of my heart to serve with you. And I, I'm always excited to see what God is up to. There's always going to be difficulties. There's always going to be people threatening to leave the church. There's always going to be people leaving the church. There's going to be new people coming. That's just life in the church. But overall, what you find is God just uses this amazing organism of his body to bless us, to put his glory on display. And I rejoice in that. And While I love each of you, so very much. I confess that I fall woefully short of being able to love you as you deserve. Sometimes I hear something that that troubles me, and that is people saying, you know, I, I just don't feel loved in this church. I don't ask you to do much, but I would ask you to do this. If you feel that way, will you love me enough to come tell me so that I can understand how I can better love you? So I can understand what's going on. Because believe me, I want you to feel loved. I want you to feel loved. I love you. I care for you. But there is no way with all the people here and then you all have families. I mean, we're looking at thousands of people that I will interact with and the elders will interact with over the course of a year. There's no way that we can read your mind or, or minister to you as we should. So, But we want to know so that we can so that we can serve you. And can I give you a little secret? There are times when Nancy and I don't feel loved either. And you know, partly what you have to realize is that, you know, that's the way it's going to be. And, and don't, don't hear me say that to, to, to mitigate, you know, maybe your pain here. But the reality is we live in a fallen world with a bunch of, bunch of sinners and we don't love very well. And, and there's, you know, there's just all kinds of reasons why sometimes we don't feel loved. But... We know that there, will, that there is nothing that can separate us from what? From the love of God. There is nothing. And so that's what we will fall back on. Realizing that someday we're going to be in heaven. Boy, won't that be great? We won't need five pillars anymore. 
We, we won't need to be organized and say, well, you know, help me with this and I'll try to help you. You know, it's all going to be taken care of. But just think, nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Won't heaven be wonderful when we can finally enter into that time of rest? And I have to say, you know, God has given me great physical strength and stamina, given me a wonderful wife, great group of elders, all of you people. And I'm, I'm... I'm ready to sprint to the finish line. I don't know how many more years I've got, but I am not going to relax. And I hope you won't either, you know, as we move ahead. And I would like to to close this morning. And by the way, I'll take the next maybe three Sundays to combine all of the rest of these pillars. I'm going to have some of the guys that are going to be working on these things explain some new things that I that we are so excited about that's coming down the pike. But I want to close by asking that you pray for me the same prayer that I pray for you. In fact, it's right up here. Would you just read this with me? This is my prayer for you for so often, so often. And, and this is what I would ask that you pray for me, for Nancy, for the elders. Let's read this together. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, this is our prayer for each other, and it is based upon the glorious salvation that is ours. So, Lord, I pray that even as we think through some of the the vision and the goals, some of the strategic objectives of Calvary Bible Church. Lord, we know they're going to be flawed at some level because we are a flawed people, but Lord, we would cry out to you that by the power of your Spirit, you will unite us together in one purpose of one mind to bring glory to you. So I pray, pray that what we have talked about today will bear much fruit in each of our lives. For it's in Christ's name that I ask it. Amen.